Our scripture reading for today comes from Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Well, this is our third conversation we're having about peace. And uh, we've been talking about peace for the last three weeks and what it means to have peace. And I'm not sure the rest of the world is listening to us right now because I'm not sure over the last three weeks if we've gotten any more peaceful outside in the world. And I know sometimes that can be very discouraging to think there, it, there's nothing that's making any difference. But as a people of God, we can make a difference if we really listen and hear what God has to say to us about peace. And given the times that we're living in, it could not be more crucial for the church to understand, maintain, and be able to offer peace. So that's what we're talking about today. And we've been looking at this image of putting a a puzzle together. And if you've ever worked on a puzzle before. We talked about how you have to look at the picture on the box to know what you're putting together. And we, we now know what we're putting together and, and what it looks like. We talked about that. And then we've, we begin the process of putting this puzzle together. And we talked about getting the corner pieces and, and making the frame, you know, getting all the edge pieces together. If you do a puzzle, that's typically what you do. And then really the hard work begins, putting together the rest of the puzzle. And, and that's where we're at this morning when we're talking about peace. We're now to the hard part. We're getting to the part that takes time, that takes a lot of effort, as we've talked about this process of peace. And there's, there's times when you're, any puzzle, anybody love doing puzzles? I, I love puzzles. You know, there's times when you start doing a puzzle that uh, many pieces just start falling in place real easily, and then there's other times where it feels like you're, you're not making any progress at all. But as someone who loves to do puzzles, uh, you know, there's that sense when you're getting close to finishing, where you're getting close to putting that last piece of the puzzle in the puzzle. And there's something satisfying about putting that last piece in and looking back and saying that, yes, it's done. It's good. It is all good. But have you ever put a puzzle together only to realize there is a piece missing? And when do you find out that there's a piece missing? At the end, right? Right before you're finishing. And there is nothing worse than putting together a puzzle and having a piece missing. Because then you start to frantically search for that piece. Because it feels like you've wasted your time if you haven't found that last piece of the puzzle. So here we are as we're at the end of this series on, connect, on peace, on pieces of peace. We're trying to connect the piece. And we're looking at this last essential piece of the puzzle. What is it? Well, I think that essential piece is prayer. Prayer is essential 
for peace. Now, as a pastor, you knew I'd say that probably. But, uh, but it's important. It is because it forces us, prayer forces us to be in the presence of God. And you know, peace, we're not going to live as, as Christians even, uh, we're not always going to be just living in a sense of peace where everything is just peaceful all the time. No, there's times when it's bad. And so what prayer does is it forces us to acknowledge God's presence. It forces us to kind of center ourselves again and remind ourselves that God is in control, that he is there. There is power in prayer to bring peace, even despite our circumstances. And, and our scripture from Jeremiah is such a great scripture to, that is kind of lead us through this process on how we are to pray for peace and how we live in peace in spite of a chaotic world around us. So before we read the scripture again, I want to give us some context that, uh, that, of this text from Jeremiah, this letter that Jeremiah is writing to the exiles of Israel. So here's the context. Israel has been overrun and taken into cap- captivity by the Babylonian king uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so they're uh, under Babylonian rule. God had been warning Israel, though, for some time that this was coming. This was going to happen. Many prophets, including Jeremiah, have been telling the people, hey, this, this destruction of your nation is coming. You're about to go into exile. They knew, uh, God told them that their destruction and captivity was in their future because of Israel's horrible rebellion. They had rebelled against God and his word. And so to give us some context, we're going to go back in Jeremiah 18, uh, verses 1 through 12. And we read these words. This is God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as the potter has done? Says the Lord, just like the city, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, says, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil ways and amend your ways and your doings. But they say, It is no use. We will follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our evil will. Wow, quite a passage there. And and you think about it, you know, here God is warning them what's going to happen. And what do they do? They say, nah, we're just going to do whatever we want to do anyway. It's, it's no use for you to tell us what to do. We're just going to do what we want to do. It's pretty arrogant, isn't it? They're, they're thumbing their nose at God. And so what evil had Israel done that God was going to destroy their nation? And we read about that in the next chapter in Jeremiah 19, 3 through 5. Here are these words. It says this, So say to them, listen to this message from the Lord. 
your kings of Judah and citizens of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. I will bring a terrible disaster on this place and the ears of those who hear about it will ring. For Israel has forsaken me and turned this valley into a place of wickedness. The people burn incense to foreign gods, idols never before acknowledged by this generation, by their ancestors, or by the kings of Judah. And they have filled this place with the blood of innocent children. They have built pagan shrines to Baal, and there they burn their sons as sacrifices to Baal. I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. Wow. God's people had not only turned away from God's word and, and embraced uh, foreign gods, but they embraced the horrendous practice of killing children in idol worship. May that serve as a warning for us as well. How often are our children sacrificed for idols? I think of the hundreds of thousands of children who are aborted each year. The hundreds and thousands of children that are exploited, that are, do things that they shouldn't be doing, and we endorse it. So God sent the powerful Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment against his people. God was using a foreign king to bring judgment on his nation. And King Zedekiah, who is the, the king over Judah and ruled in Jerusalem for nine years before Nebuchadnezzar came, his armies came, and they arrived at Jerusalem and they laid siege to the city for two terrible years. And during that siege, there was plague and there was famine. It was a hopeless Situation. They had lost all hope. It was so hopeless that King Zedekiah and his soldiers, they tore a section of the wall out trying to flee away from the Babylonian empire. But Israel was no match for the Babylonians. And those who survived the siege and the plague and the famine were taken into captivity to go back to Babylon. But before they left, here's what the Babylonians did. They completely destroyed the city. They made them watch as they tore down the temple of God. They made them watch as they burned the city, as they tore down the walls around the city that protected it. They completely destroyed it, and then they took them into captivity and forced them to march to Babylon. That's the context of our verses from Jeremiah 29. We see the horrible things that Israel had done and the terrible things that they have witnessed and experienced and, and can you just imagine the sense of hopelessness that you would feel at that moment? They must have been just beside themselves wondering what has happened. What has gone wrong? And this is where we get to Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Let's read it again. This is the, the letter to the Babylonian captives from God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent... Do you see that? Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare you will find your welfare. 
couple of things here that just are shocking. First, in spite of everything that Israel had done, here God is offering them peace. He's offering them peace in this place. And he's telling them as they go into exile to pray. But God had already told them that that peace could come if they would change what they were doing. Again, in 18, 7 through 8, again we read, At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. Here God wants them to change what they've been doing and turn back to him in spite of where they were. So, Let Israel be a reminder for you that you are never too far gone to have peace with God. You are never too far gone to turn and have peace with God. You've never messed up so badly that you cannot have peace with God. But let Israel also remind us that peace can only come on God's terms, not on our own. And so, I want us to, to kind of glean, this is the hard part of finishing up this, this puzzle that we've had in peace, uh, but it's important for us to understand these lessons. These are the insights we gain from Israel that can help us connect the peace. The first is this, peace doesn't cancel consequences. Peace doesn't cancel consequences. The entire reason Jeremiah was writing his letter to the exiles was due to the fact that they were embracing lies. They, they, they thought that this exile was just gonna be real quick. That because they were the people of God, the chosen people of God, God was gonna spare them from any suffering. We're not gonna suffer, we're God's children. How arrogant is that, especially since they've been doing all these horrible practices. They're like, we're gonna worship whatever we got, God we want to, we're gonna do whatever terrible things we want to, but because we're God's children, we're just gonna, he's gonna protect us. It's pretty prideful. They thought they could avoid the consequences of rebellion. But peace doesn't cancel consequences. And in fact, Jeremiah told them exactly what was going to happen. We read that in the next verse in Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years. He tells them up front, you got 70 years. Not even 40 like the, in, in the wilderness. No, you're going to get 40 plus 30. 70 years you're going to be in exile. Oh my goodness. We complain about three months of inconvenience. How easy it must have been to either ignore this word from Jeremiah though because all the other prophets were saying, ah, it's not going to be long. Yeah, we're, we're going to be back here in just a, a few months. They're going to, well, yeah, no, 70 years. You got 70 years ahead of you. And that's discouraging. But this is not what God intended or what he wanted, but he wanted them to have peace in the midst of that. And that's our second point. Peace can come through consequences. Peace can come through consequences. And I think this is so important. God very, very clearly tells Israel they're going to remain in captivity for 70 years. This was the consequence of their rebellion. But God intended for Israel to embrace those circumstances. But God is telling Israel, you got to settle in, but don't settle. Settle in. This is going to be a long ride. It's going to be your whole life. 
but do not settle. Come back to me. Be faithful to me. Settle in, but don't settle. He's telling them, hey, it's going to be 70 years, but you're, you're going to build homes here. You're going to plant crops. You're going to marry. You're going to multiply. Don't waste this time in exile. Don't just sit back and say, woe is me. Oh, no, it's terrible. No. He says, no, be at peace here and just recognize you've got to settle in, but don't settle. God's hope that Israel would embrace their circumstances. God's intent all along for this captivity was not to destroy them, but for them to kind of strip away everything else so that they had to depend on God. We've kind of experienced some of the same thing now, right now, in just a couple of months. And so often we can get bogged down in the chaos of the world around us that we don't settle in to what God wants for us in it. God has stripped away a lot of the things that are not important. And, and we're left with the question of what is important. And will we have peace in the midst of it? God is saying you can if you pray for peace. If you will turn to me. If you will ask for forgiveness. Yes. He was hoping that this captivity wouldn't destroy but would restore them to who they were supposed to be, the people of God. So look with me with what God says right after this, the end of Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. He says this, For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then verse 11, the most misunderstood verse here in Jeremiah. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. This was given at the beginning of the 70 years, not at the end. This is the plan, right? Uh, then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. That's the word of promise that God is giving to the people. God was working through these circumstances to remove all false hopes so that his people would look and search for him with all their hearts and be completely devoted. That's what God wanted. He wanted them completely devoted to him. That leads to our next insight. Hardships should season us, not sear us. Hardships I can't even say it, should, that's a tongue twister, should season us, not sear us. You know, there, there are times in our lives that don't make sense. Seasons of discouragement and pain. We're all going to have that. We're all going to struggle at times. But instances when God doesn't do what we think God should do, those moments, though, shouldn't sear us. Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 9, 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, in biblical times, salt was highly valued because 
It, it was seen as a symbol of, of purification, uh, long-lasting commitment and covenant. It, it preserved things, and, and that's what Jesus is calling us to do, is to, to be a flavor for the world. Jesus is encouraging us that times of hardship will come, and everyone will be burned during times without peace in crisis. None of us are going to get away from that. But we can choose to allow those times to season us or to sear us. We can either be flavoring for the world that purifies our commitment to Christ, or we can allow those times to sear our hearts and harden them to God. It's our choice. I hope you choose wisely. Fiery seasons of hardship and unrest can teach us to depend on God and not our circumstances. And Jesus is also cautioning cautioning us not to allow our circumstances, the things around us, to divide us, especially as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not be divided in seasons of chaos. It is so easy because the rest of the world, uh, everyone out there is trying to divide us. Don't let that happen as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can disagree, but don't let it divide us. And that leads us to our fourth thing, which is really the first thing I said. Prayer is essential to peace. Prayer is essential to peace. Again, we started with this, but I want us to kind of dig just a little deeper here. We have to keep in mind that when God told Israel to pray, they had lost every semblance of their normal worship experience. Their temple, destroyed. Their sacrificial system, that was the system in which they could get forgiveness, gone. Their priesthood, gone. Their city, gone. They couldn't even worship online. Babylon back then just had dial-up. They couldn't even get online worship. It was terrible that God still expected them to live faithful lives of prayer. Everything else has been stripped away. You can still pray. Everything else has been stripped away. You can still pray. Settle in, but don't settle. Jeremiah was was pointing out to God's people that that ministry and access to God could continue despite the circumstance the nation was facing. Without a building, without an order of worship, without leadership, in captivity, God expected his people to still be a kingdom of priests for the world. And this brings us to our fifth one, and this is the tough one. Peace benefits everyone. That's easy to say, oh yeah, peace is great for everyone. It's not easy to do. Because here in Jeremiah 29 is the first declaration to pray for one's enemies in the Old Testament. This is the first time where God says, pray for the welfare of your enemies. Yeah. Think about the significance of what God is saying. Because I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I pray for those who I disagree with, but I'm not praying for their welfare. Right? Heavenly Father, smite them. Right? Just me? Now, come on. Y'all are liars. But think about this. I'm called to pray for those who just burned down my temple. I'm called to pray for those who just destroyed my city. I'm called to pray for those who caused most of my family to die in a famine from starvation. 
I'm called to pray for those who are holding me captive. What does that say for us today? We have no excuse to not be praying for those we disagree with politically, those who believe differently than we do, those who have wounded us. I mean, it's a little easier than what they had to do. But there's no excuse. Those of you who are Democrats, you should be praying for President Trump. Those of you who are Republicans should be praying for Biden. Because that's what God calls us to do. (laughs) And they're not even our enemies. But praying for our enemies, especially during times of conflict and unrest, it reveals God's character. And it reveals, it it humbles us, right? That's why prayer is so important. It, It humbles us. Jesus expanded on this theme, didn't he? He talked something about this as well, praying for one's enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, we find it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 45. Jesus is saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God is such more graceful than I am. But this is how we connect the peace in our lives. This is how we connect peace in our lives. Jeremiah's letter to the exiles gives us context for peace in our lives. And it is still significant for us today. You know, given the unrest lack of peace in our lives today, the amount of division and strife we see, I hope that we can learn from Jeremiah. I hope that we can see the importance of this. I hope because no one else is going to do it if we don't. We are called to pray for peace. We are called to be agents of peace, to internalize it and send it out. So I want you to remember these five things. Peace doesn't cancel consequences. No. But peace can come through consequences. So we have to remember to settle in and not settle. Hardships should season us, not sear us. Prayer is essential to peace. And peace should benefit everyone. So what's our next step? I invite the worship band if you all come up at this time. Well, I want us to have an opportunity to pray for peace, to pray for peace in our lives, and then to pray for peace out there as well in those circumstances. So I want you to take a moment, and if you would, just humor me a second. Close your eyes for just a second and take a deep breath. And begin to ask God, how you can have peace in spite of your circumstances. Begin to ask God how he can soften your heart even now to those things that keep you from having peace. Some of you are fearful. You're fearful about school starting. You're fearful about sending your your kids to school. You're, You're fearful about the decisions going on. You're fearful about an election. You're fearful about so many things. And that fear can overwhelm us. It can, it can sear us if we're not 
careful. But may we even now begin to be seasoned with salt, recognizing that God is in control. Ask God if you've allowed those hardships to to season you or or sear your heart and, and ask for forgiveness. And then I would encourage you to pray for someone who you currently don't have peace with. Do your part. Ask for forgiveness and forgive them. Let it go. Some of you are holding on to things that you don't need to be holding on to and you need to let those things go. I know it's not easy. But if we're going to have peace, if we're going to be a people of peace, we have to let those things go. And I know some of you are not letting go because the person you have to forgive is yourself. What is the Spirit of God saying to you? See, because Jesus said to his disciples the night in which he was betrayed, He knew what you were going to do. And he said these words, peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Because I have given you peace. In fact, God says I have gone to prepare a place for you. And even though Jesus had to leave to be on the throne in heaven, he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I have sent my spirit to be with you. So even now, the spirit of God is in this room sitting right beside you. No matter what you are going through, God is with you. He asked that you would let go. Yeah, you're going to probably take it up again. But that's why we go back to God in prayer saying, God, help us to let it go again. Take that next step to have peace in your life so that you can be an agent of peace in the world. Thank you, God, for the peace that you give, the peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, God, that you don't let us go. Thank you, God, that in spite of the stupidity we have done, you still offer peace. Thank you, God, in spite of all that we forget, all that we cling on to, you still offer us peace. You just say, come to me, trust in me, because God has a future plan for us. Thank you, God, that even in the midst of chaos, you say the future is secure if you'll just trust We trust you, God. We give it to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.